Welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Today, we're taking a little bit of a different track. Instead of talking about a science topic that we're educating you, our listeners, we're talking with two different educators about how coaches themselves and athletes learn. So I think we're going to have a great conversation today. We have Joe Friel, the illustrious author, well-known across the world for Training Peaks and everything else he's been involved with, and maybe a little bit of a newcomer, John Tarkington with USA Cycling. So going to have a really great conversation about coach education kind of from both sides of the fence today. Hi, everyone. This is Coach Connor. Fast Talk Labs just released the newest module from the craft of coaching with Joe Friel, which we're really excited about here at Fast Talk Labs. We all know that it takes plenty of analysis, critical thinking, and decision-making to create performance. Joe Friel unpacks the complexity of this topic with a guide to the common training metrics and tools for the data analysis. You'll learn more about balancing training load over a season, how to get athletes race-ready, and best practices for post-race analysis. Hear from pros turned master coaches, Ben Day of Day-to-Day Coaching, who talks about how to best measure and cultivate performance, and Julie Divins, who describes how to help your athletes grow from failure and disappointment. If you are results-driven, this module is not to be missed. Contact us to learn more at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, Joe and John, it's great to have both of you on the show. I know both of you have been heavily involved in coach education and athlete education, so this is a topic near and dear to your hearts. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Trevor. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Trevor. So, Joe, you've kind of been everywhere, right? I have written down in my notes, you're an OG of coaching. You were an athlete for a long time. You've literally written the book. You've been part of Coaches in Education, Tell us real quick in, in 30 seconds, you know, what do the listeners need to know about you? Oh, well, I've been around a long time, as you mentioned, and I think that's in some ways good, but it, it, sometimes I feel like it's a burden I'm carrying also. But I've been around the sport, around endurance sports, running, triathlon, cycling since the 1950s. Let's take it back that far. As First as an athlete and later on as a coach. And uh, so I've kind of seen the world of coaching evolve over the course of 50 years. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. John, you're kind of part of the new guard, right? You were an athlete for a long time, high-level rider, a coach of individuals, right, through Teton Cycling, right? And now you're at USAC. Correct. And so even though I've been around for a while as a coach and an athlete, it's still half as long as Joe. But I am definitely new to my role as Coaching Education and Development Director for USA Cycling, but I'm pretty emphatic about it. It's been a program that's been a little empty for a while, and we're excited to bring it back to life. So a place I kind of want to start this conversation is, you know, a little bit of history, right? I think that even back in ancient times, we knew a little bit about the body, you know, and then kind of around the turn of the century is when we really began the study of physiology with names like A.V. Hill that we've mentioned before on the Fast Talk podcast. But it seems like at that point in time, there wasn't really a lot of coaching going on. What what was the situation for runners and Olympians and and cyclists at the turn of the century? Well, at the turn of the century, it was really, I would not call it professional coaching at all. There were people who were uh, helping athletes, let's put it that way improve their performance. They weren't doing this as professionals, more along the lines of fun, just something they enjoyed doing. And they enjoyed the sport, whether it was cycling or running or whatever it may be. 
and they advised people on what they thought they ought to be doing with and how to prepare for for an event. That was very, very basic. And uh, that was the starting point for all of this. And probably around the 19, as you mentioned, 1930s is when coaching began to actually become something which was considered to be a, a, a profession. Although most people at that time were still doing it as a part-time job, something they did on the side, but it was something they enjoyed a lot. And, and it's evolved. It continues to evolve. It's by no means reached a pinnacle yet. This has been going on for many, many decades and coaching is still still evolving, still uh, we're still learning how to do things, still creating new ways of uh, churning athletes, preparing for, for competition. But it really takes us back to, you know, turn of the century, the 20th century, as far as people actually who are advising athletes on how to prepare for competition. So I won't go into a lot of details on that, but but that's it's it's an old profession which is really still in some ways in its infancy. We're still we're still learning how to do this trade of coaching. Yeah. You know what? 1930, if I remember correctly, was when the term fartlek training came out. So that's kind of what I'm associating with the beginning of maybe a more of a formalized or standardized, you know, coaching methodology. But Joe, in, in the craft of coaching, you know, that we're producing with you through Fast Talk, you bring up two different coaches, Franz Stomfel and Doc Councilman, as being really influential you know, do you know, do you have any insight specifically kind of into them where they got their information that they were disseminating to athletes? Because we've moved forward a little bit. Now we're talking about the 40s and the 50s, correct? That's correct. Uh, Franz Stomfel, and I, I'd be surprised if somebody out there knew who Franz Stomfel was, but you've all heard of Roger Bannister. I'm sure everybody's aware of him. Uh, well, Franz Stomfel was Bannister's coach. And Stomfel had been an athlete himself back in the 30s and 40s, very interesting story. If you just want to read a, a fascinating story about somebody's life, just go to Wikipedia and search for Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, Stompfel. And very, very interesting life he went through as an Austrian, goes to prison in Britain, sent to Canada. The ship is sunk during World War II by the Nazis. He manages to get back to Britain again, where he's put back into prison again. Then they send him to, to Australia to a prison down there. It's just this fascinating story about how this guy became an athlete, and eventually became a coach. And all these things that have to do with World War II were part of his, basically, his his growth as a coach, what he learned along the way. He was self-taught. He had no degree in anything related to coaching or biology. He was a self-taught individual who develops unique methodologies for working with athletes. Basically, it was interval training. That was his primary methodology. And he used that with Bannister, to great success. But the primary thing he did really was not so much his coaching methodology physiologically or biologically, it was more psychologically. He realized the challenge with Bannister was not trying to prepare him physically. He thought he could do it. In fact, he knew he could do it. The challenge was to prepare him psychologically because nobody believed back in the 1940s and early 50s that anybody could break four minutes for the mile. That was considered to be impossible by many people, including people in, in uh, physiology. So he had to convince him he could do it. So he spent a lot of, he spent more time in restaurants and bars talking to Bannister than he did on the track with him overseeing workouts. Unique individual. He brings a lot to the sport. He came out with a book in 1955, which I read, which by the way, is the most expensive book I've ever bought in my life because it's been around for so many years and been a lot of people had it before me. 
But nevertheless, uh, interesting guy who developed, he's one of the first people to develop a, a, a methodology for coaching. Well thought out and well presented in his book. Then you mentioned Doc Councilman. This is a guy who's entirely different from Stoffel. This is a guy who'd been an athlete himself. They have that in common. But he goes on to get a PhD in exercise physiology. He produces a number of papers that are published in, in journals. And he believes in coaching his athletes based on science. He's very scientifically oriented, and he's very successful. He's the swim coach at Indiana University. He produces more than 50 medalists in the Olympics over the course of his coaching career, probably the most successful coach in history if we look at that as being the measure of what success is all about. And he taught everything based on, on science. The things that swimmers do today in the pool are things that he was the first to do. Little things like having a, a lane line clock. That was his idea. Today we accept that as being common in, in swimming is that every, there's a, a clock on the wall which tells you you know, what your, so you can figure your, what your lap splits are while you're doing a, a workout. Well, that was his idea. His idea also was to teach swimming as a, a form of the Bernoulli principle, which I won't go into detail here, but that has to do with how wing on an airplane works. And he talked about lift and drag and how the arm, the swimmer's body and arm should be in the water. So you improve this ability to move forward by using fluid dynamics to move forward, which is the same as gas dynamics in the Bernoulli principle. So he's, he's talking about all this stuff with his athletes, which was brand new ideas. And today, coaches are still using his ideas. He was a coach back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's when he was coaching at the peak of his career. Coaches to this day, swim coaches, are still using his ideas and his ways of doing things. So these are two very unique individuals who produced a great deal of success with athletes, but they did it in remarkably different ways. Yeah. So we highlight these two people that are relatively close to each other in time, but it feels like this transition maybe between when we're moving from experience, right? The things that you knew yourself to more a sort of scientific study and the sharing of knowledge. Now, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were an athlete about this time in the fifties. What was sort of your firsthand experience with how coaching was happening and can you use that to take us all the way through to today? Well, I was in junior high. I was a runner in junior high school in the 1950s. 1960s, I'm still a runner. High school, mid-1960s, I'm in college, a runner. And so I've gone through the 50s, 60s, and 70s as an, as a, an athlete. And I saw how coaches worked, how they worked with their athletes. And I, I assume that's the way you did it. I became a coach in the 1970s. I was coaching uh, high school track and field. And I simply went back and did what my coaches did. How did they coach me? And I used those very same methodologies with my athletes. And it really wasn't until the late 70s, I had my, I had my master's degree by this point, which is 1977, exercise science. And um, I began to realize around the early 1980s that I didn't know very much. The world was changing. The world of sport was changing. I could see science becoming something that we had never talked about when I was, even in my college years, working on my master's, we hadn't talked about all this stuff. And so I realized I had to, I had to somehow become smarter. And that improvement had to be in the area of science. And so I began to do things in my life to uh, become more well-read. 
first thing I did was I just started, I, I subscribed to publications that were related to uh, the science of sport. For example, I took a, subscribed to a publication that came out monthly called Running Research News. And all the author did was he produced a four-page document that came out once a month and it just talked about the latest research. That was a starting point for me. That then led me to start going to uh, the library. I lived next to the Colorado State University Library, and I would go over there and read publications looking for abstracts that I could uh, make copies of that I thought might be interesting. I didn't want to read the entire article, the entire study every time I go in there. So I just wanted to read abstracts to find the studies that I thought might be interesting to me and valuable to me. So I would make copies of these abstracts and take them home, and, and I've had a stack of abstracts on my office desk, and every morning I would pick up an abstract off the top of the stack. I would read it, see if there's anything here that I thought may be beneficial to my coaching. If there was, I would, I would go back to the library, try to find the publication, read the details about that study, take notes. I would put everything onto a three-by-five card so I could summarize it very, very succinctly. On the back side of the card, I would write the uh, author and the, the publication, all that sort of thing. So if I wanted to find it again, I could. And so I started doing that back in the early 1980s. It is now 40-some years later. I am still doing that. I've still got, now I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of three-by-five cards, which are all categorized by topic. My wife has been very good to me in putting all this onto a, into a, a document on my computer so in case something happens with a fire or something, it's, it's all preserved. But I've got 40 years of notes on research studies. To this day, when a topic comes up and I want to know something about that topic, I go back and pull out the file and look at all the studies that are related to that topic. That was a start for me of trying to become more scientific because I knew that everything I'd done before that was of little value. In fact, I was thinking back just a couple of days ago, was there anything I learned in college in my undergraduate years, or even in my graduate years, that I think was valuable information. I cannot come up with a single thing. It was just all stuff that got me primed and, and started thinking about the direction I wanted to go with coaching, and but that had to evolve outside of school. You both have touched on this. That's one of the transitions that I've found really interesting in the history of coaching, which is much newer, which is coaching used to be much more an experience thing. It was you you just worked with athletes, you saw what works, you build the experience, and, and the way you learned to be a coach was essentially to, to apprentice with another coach and gain from their experience. We have shifted to much more of a science-based model to the point that coaching is almost more a science and analysis than anything else. I'm interested in when that happened and, and what's your feeling on that shift? Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I saw the shift taking place in the early 80s. This is about when I decided I realized I, I, realized I had to do something to improve my, my science background to become a better coach. But that, that's when it was happening. But it was just beginning early 1980s, at least from my impression. There had been sports scientists around before that, but they really weren't considered to be relevant in the world of sport. They were seen as being kind of a you know, on the hill and outside of the realm of coaching or outside of the realm of sport. It was interesting stuff, but so what? And by the early 80s, I was seeing this, this change taking place. There was a lot more discussion about things that were coming out of science. And so, yeah, that's, what, that's when it began to happen. But so the 80s and 90s is when it really takes off. By the 90s, we were deeply 
enmeshed in the science of coaching. Today, I'm afraid we've almost gone too far now. We've almost gotten to the point now that I see it as a coach needs to think they need to have a, a degree in a science-related field to be a good coach. And, and that's really not the case. I'm sure we'll get into more details about this sort of stuff later on. But I think that's, that's the direction we've gone, and we've simply gone overboard, I believe. When I was going back to get my coaching certificates, for example, I was amazed at how much stuff that was, it was science that we were talking about all the time. It was always the science of coaching, methodologies, physiology, biology. It was always this sort of stuff we were talking about. There was, but there was so much that goes on in coaching that's not related to those things or, or distantly related to those things. And we weren't talking about those things at all. And those are the things I think that perhaps we have the biggest gap in now. We've almost gone to the opposite way of from when I was a, as an athlete back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. We've now gone to the point where science is overplayed and we're underplaying all the other elements of coaching that are also just as important. Yeah, let's take this as a jumping off point, John. I'd love to, you know, you're, you're the master of what's happening in coaching today. Well, I want to first reinforce what Joe was saying in that I think the late 80s, early 90s was when we saw an inflection of data into endurance sports. I mean, first with the heart rate monitor as being this new data channel. And I think I was coming of age in that time frame. I still remember getting my first heart rate monitor and you're staring at it as you ride going, what does this mean? And I think that opened the door for the integration of science and kind of the explosion of commercial coaching. And then when power meters came and added a whole new element to that, that field got even more important where the coach served two roles. It was guide sport, but also to digest and interpret data in order to create an effective training plan. And that, what I, I kind of term that as coaching 2.0. And at that same time was when coaching education started to become more prevalent among sporting governing bodies. And USA Cycling, USA Triathlon, both came out with education programs in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was when things really started to take a step forward in formalizing coaching as kind of a profession. And so that brings us almost into today where I have to totally agree with Joe, where I see, I don't want to say a door closing, but I think we've been in that room. We've seen it. We've done a lot in that room and it's time to go through another door. Like there is definitely a new focus that's going to start to take place in the hopefully near future for coaching, especially among endurance sports. I mean, I think that there's, there's an interesting, I don't want to say disconnect, right? But various aspects that play into maybe the athlete coach, athlete medical, athlete research relationship, or sometimes in different places, right? Where, Joe, you kind of alluded to it before, the push-pull between a coach and a sports scientist, right? I, I think that still even kind of exists today. The Though the sports scientist is just the theoretical, they don't know what it's like in the real world and, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, as much as we have this information to share now, as much as it's readily available, I don't know that everybody's on the same page all the time between where the coach is. Sometimes the coach is really on the forefront of what's mm -hmm. going on. 
It's true. There are many coaches out there who just really blow me away with where they are right now and what they're thinking about and what they're talking about, what they're proposing. It's an amazing world right now for being able to keep up with what's going on in the profession. I go back to the 1980s. I had to go to a library and pull out journals off the shelf to read articles about science. Today, I can turn on my computer and go to any number of social media and find coaches who are leading the world in the way they think about their profession and read about what they're thinking right now, read about what they're doing with their athletes, how they're proposing we train our athletes. It's an amazing world. Sometimes it's so amazing it's hard to keep up with anymore because there's so many possibilities for us, whereas when... When I was getting started on this thing with science, there wasn't a whole lot of avenues. I had a library in town, the college library, and I could pick up journals in there and I could read them. That was it. That was my only avenue. Now we've got all these things that are going on online that you can use as a coach to, to grow yourself as a coach. The problem now is not trying to find the information, but trying to narrow down the amount of information that you're being confronted with because you can be overwhelmed. What's going on in the world of coaching today is, is truly amazing. I'm watching all the time to see what other coaches are saying and thinking and doing, and I'm learning an awful lot. It always causes me to, to stop and think about the things that I've been doing with athletes and I've proposed athletes do over the years. Are these things still relevant? Because the world is indeed changing. I think a lot of these conversations that are happening that you're seeing, especially on social media, they're almost like the tip of the sphere, right? And they're, they're really brand new information. What I'm wondering about actually, if we can kind of start here is other pathways of knowledge for the coach. How does the coach just get the foundational knowledge that you need to know? Mm. I know most of us, John, I don't know if you have like an advanced degree in physiology, but the university system, that's one way to do it. Is it, is it the best way? What are we looking at for just the foundational knowledge that a coach needs to have? Coach education programs through national governing bodies are one source of that information. But I think in the current era, Joe's, again, totally right. There is a plethora of ways to learn that are out there. In fact, one of the more productive timeframes I had as a coach was being part of a coaching group, which would once a month get together, meet and one person was in charge of determining what the article was going to be and, of course, buying pastries for the morning. But we would <laughs> sit around, we would all read the article, and we would sit around and, and discuss it. And it's practical it's a scientific studies and a, talk about the practical application in our coaching businesses. And so uh, while I know social media can be a great source, I still revert back to Google Scholar as kind of the primary piece. And that... I mean, that's just about every journal you could ever possibly want. You can type in three words, especially if the first one's athlete, and you'll be amazed at what you can find in there. So this concept of, of what you can find in the way of information that's trusted, that's where I kind of see progress being made in terms of coaching education, is moving beyond our kind of traditional NGB education models where it's traditionally been, and for a lot of team sports, there's a necessity to being in-person and hands-on. Cycling always had hands-on education pieces, but it was mainly to deliver classroom uh, education pieces. And so, you know, the next phase is definitely going to be 
a post-pandemic piece where it involves learning management systems and the ability to consume the contents that's out there, but it's curated in a way that people know and trust the information they're actually receiving. Yeah, Trevor, where, you know, John's identifying, you know, the social, the community, all of those aspects. But, you know, I know you're somebody who's been heavily involved in higher education. Do you still see, do people need to take biomechanics? Do they need to take nutrition classes? Do they need that level of just base knowledge before they become a coach? So I was just thinking about that because to me, the the really interesting conversation point that we've brought up in this podcast is that balance of the experience and the science. And everybody here has been agreeing we've probably gone a little too heavy on the science side. A great example is that podcast we recorded not too long ago where we were reviewing a couple studies. This was the debate between mm-hmm. Dr. Silent, a respected exercise physiologist in England. And he, in his paper, literally wrote, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not far off. He said, the whole idea of basing recommendations or a training model off of what the top athletes are doing is ridiculous. If it isn't shown in the lab or discovered in the lab, you can't trust it. And there's somebody basically saying, experience doesn't matter. It's, it's all yeah. science. And I think it's a balance of the two. So to, to answer your question, yeah, at this point, I think there's a limit on how good a coach you can be if you, I mean, you don't have to be get an exercise physiology degree, but you have to know some of the science. You have to learn some of the basics. You need to learn nutrition. You can't just say, hey, when I was over in Europe, I was taught the night before the race, don't eat this because then you'll lose all your energy and don't sleep with plants because they suck up the oxygen. Those days are done. You have to be able to go and say, here's what a carbohydrate is. Here's what protein is. Here's what fat is. Here's why you need them. You need that basic understanding. Well, you have to eat the plants so you get all the oxygen back. There you go. But I also think if all you have is the science without the experience side, you're going to end up making a lot of mistakes as a coach until you gain that experience one way or another. So actually, John, I'd throw this back to you. I'm very interested in your thoughts on how do coaches gain that experience? This is where it starts to get really entertaining because we've just hit on a whole number of different items that I start to develop uh, some pretty heavy thought processes on. So at least in terms of gaining education, I think the better way to, to go about this is let's rewind a little bit. And what is a coach? It's a very broad, all-encompassing term. We're trying to lump a lot under one label, and I think that's kind of challenging. However, there are some key pieces that I think are fundamental, whether you're coming at this from an academic side in terms of sports science, whether you're coming at it from, I used to be an elite athlete and I'm going to use experience to help guide my way, or I'm using, you know, whatever, whatever resources I can to gain knowledge in order to call myself a coach. And that is that coaches have a piece of identity that's shared where you're giving advice to other people and other people are listening to that advice. And there, there's some inherent pieces to that identity that I think need more development and more definition. And I think people need to be a lot more aware of that. And at the same time, that identity as an athlete of someone who's a competing athlete, like there's intrinsic pieces that I think coaches need to be aware of. And then the relationship between those two parties and the balance of power between those, I think that 
we rarely realize how much influence we have when we take on the term coach with somebody who's taken on the term athlete. And there is a lot that binds us together. And I think we have a lot to learn and a lot to do. And your stories about plants sucking up all the oxygen in the room, it's funny, but it probably was said and somebody probably listened and believed it. Sport is full of fun stories like that, but in order to really keep making progress and as, you know, at least keeping moving towards this pinnacle that I think we'll see someday, but Joe's right, we're nowhere near it. I see this next phase going much more down a road of inter and intrapersonal development. Yeah, and you brought up a question, and Joe, I'd love to explore this with you. What is a coach, right? Because I know when the image of a coach pops into my mind, it's a person that writes training plans, a person that stands at the workout and tells you what to do, maybe a person that knows a bit about sports psychology, but I don't know that that's a complete picture of a coach. You know, Joe, is there anything else that they need and and how today are coaches learning maybe some soft skills that they need to have on top of the training plan that we all associate with coaching? Yeah, good question. I, I, I would define a coach as, as basically being a generalist who has a strong background in some aspect of coaching, be it nutrition or physiology or whatever it may be. Typically, the coach today has a strong background in some aspect of preparing athletes for competition. But the primary overriding definition, I think, of a coach is a generalist. We've got to be able to deal with lots and lots of issues. We're not just dealing with nutrition. You may be a nutritionist, but that's not what coaching is. Coaching is a lot of things. And so the generalist, I think, is a way of defining that. And what I see coaching businesses doing today is they realize that the world is becoming much more complicated. They know they've got a strong background in some aspect of sport, but they also realize they need to be a generalist, but they can't know the details of all these other areas that that define a good coaching business. So what they do is they bring in specialists. They bring in a nutritionist who is somebody who's working within the company in some respect. Doesn't mean they're an employee. They may be somebody who's working on on an independent contractor basis or is basically providing information to athletes for free coaching or whatever it may be. There's all kinds of relationships I see coaches working out with their specialists to have them become members of their coaching business and provide that unique depth of information about some aspect of preparing an athlete for competition, which the coach is not prepared to do. We all know that we can't know everything. It's not possible. And yet the athlete expects us to know everything. The athlete somehow thinks that a coach there, because you're a coach, you know everything that has to do with preparing the athlete for competition. To some extent, that's true, but there are these areas where there are strengths and weaknesses. The good coach, I think, is always trying to find somebody, a specialist, who can fill in those those gaps, those weaknesses, so that the athlete is getting good preparation, good information, good training to prepare them for the competition. That's what I think good coaches do today. Now, when I was starting out in coaching, I had to know everything. There were no specialists. There was nobody in psychology who was going to help me. There was nobody in nutrition who was going to help me. This was back in the 1980s. I had to know something about all these things. And what I discovered later on was I basically knew very little about anything by the time I was all done. I could make up anything I wanted to, and people would believe me because there weren't too many coaches around. Uh, I could tell the athlete, you know, you, this is what you need to do before a competition. You need to 
you know, don't eat figs the night before a competition. They're, they're bad for you, much as having plants in your room takes away all the oxygen. The fig gives you too much, too much fiber in your diet and you won't be ready to race. I could tell them anything. It didn't make any difference what I told them because nobody was going to contradict me. There was nobody else out there who has any involvement at all in the preparation of athletes in this unique area. So I was a generalist, but I was considered to be a specialist in every area there was. Now, looking back, I realize how much, how little I knew about anything. And today, I, I realize that I know even less about things than I knew back then. It just seemed like I knew more stuff back then. So what I, I've learned to say today is, I don't know. Back when I first started coaching back in the 1970s, there was no way I would ever tell an athlete I don't know. If I didn't know, I'd make something up. And that's what we all did as coaches. And there are still coaches who do that. Looking back now, I realize how ignorant that was. It was really a very, very dumb thing to do. Nobody can possibly know everything. And somebody, an athlete asks a coach a question, what do you think about this coach? What should I do? And you don't know. You should say, I don't know, but I'll try to figure out for you if I can what the answer to that question is because it's a good question. In those days, coaches didn't say that. Coaches made something up off the top of their head, and that's what the athlete would do. The world has changed. We don't accept that anymore. It's not the way you coach anymore at all. So we need to learn that. Unfortunately, there are still coaches who believe they know everything or at least got to give the impression they know everything. One of the keys I've always found for finding a good coach is somebody I can find on Twitter who says, I don't know. If I find a coach who says, I don't know, I want to follow this person more closely because that person knows something. And what they don't know is a good indication of what they do know. Because that means they, there's something they really know very, very well but it's just not this one thing, and they're truthful. That's the most important thing to find in a coach is truth. This is what I know to be true. Now, quite honestly, what is true changes all the time. Over the years, I've seen so many things change in terms of how we coach athletes, how we look at data, all the stuff that we've been doing for many, many years. We question those things, and that's, that's good. That's what we should be doing all the time is question what we're doing not accept things at face value. So that's my rant, which I'm, I always use for, for people I talk to who are coaches that first thing you always say and you don't know is I don't know. And that's the starting point for figuring out the answer to the question and helping your athlete. I read this great article probably about 10 years ago about expertise. And the thing that, a couple of things in that article that really had an impact on me, but one that I never forgot was it said that as you gain expertise in, a, in an area, as you gain knowledge, you are also gaining knowledge of all the things you haven't yet learned and don't yet know, and there might not be answers to. So this article made the point that when you encounter somebody who claims they know everything about a topic, they are actually not an expert. An expert will always say, there is a whole lot I don't know. Yeah, that's called the Dunning-Kruger curve. Can't display that right now, but the idea is well, that- I love that you know the name of that. <laughs> When you first start out in any field like, like coaching, in a short period of time, you think you figured it all out, and now you know everything. And, but there's some things begin to happen that begin to question, cause you to question, do I really know everything? And then you fall from this peak of hopefully knowing everything to this valley of knowing, not really accepting that you know anything. And so you begin to think, gosh, maybe I'm not, I'm not cut out to do this. I'm not cut out to be a coach. And if you stick in with it long enough, what begins to happen is the curve begins to go north again, and you begin to learn things from whatever reason it may be. We've talked about these things before, be it going to 
your national governing body's educational program or going to college or, or reading more or whatever it may be, mentorship, whatever it may be. But you begin to learn, and eventually you get to this very, very high point of knowledge. And at that point, what the person says when they're at that point on the curve is, I think I know something now. But that's a big change from when they first started out and they thought they knew everything. So they begin to question themselves. The, old, the more advanced somebody is in their field, the more likely they are to realize that they don't know the answers. Joe, you just you brought up something that I want to touch back on, and that was specialization is almost important, right, for a coach that people are becoming maybe more knowledgeable in certain areas. And I want to take that concept and, and turn our eyes toward the future. Is specialization within coaching, is that a direction we should be moving for coach education? What does the future of this looks like as we move this conversation forward? Yeah, the, it's, a, it, it's become a broader field than what it was when I was getting my, my degree or especially even getting my uh, coaching licenses from national governing bodies. It's changed so much since then. And we've talked about how the emphasis seems to have been the last many years, several years on on the science side of coaching, especially exercise physiology, you know, biology, anatomy, nutrition, methodology, all these sorts of things that we accept as being kind of at the heart of coaching. But I would propose there's there's one big area we're leaving out that I don't see anybody getting any education at all on in any particular area I've ever seen. Maybe there is some place they're doing this, and it's the psychosocial side of coaching. The psychosocial side is extremely important. It has to do with the psychology of working with athletes and preparing athletes for competition and the social side of preparing athletes for competition. These, these things are going on all the time. We've got the bio side. It's, it's sometimes referred to as biopsychosocial, which sounds kind of like a, a very scientific term, and I guess it is. The bio side, we spend a lot of time on. The psychosocial side, we've not done, done very much with at all. And that's where I think the big gap is right now that we need to fill for for coaches, it's fine if a coach gets a degree in physiology. I think that's great. Or nutrition or or whatever the field may be, which we've kind of come to accept as being the ways that we prepare coaches to uh, for their profession. But I would add psychosocial in here significantly. We need to understand what's going on with our athletes between their ears, in their relationships, in how they, for example, the relationship with the coach-athlete relationship is hardly ever talked about. That's extremely critical to success for the athlete is how they get along with the coach, what their relationship is. Not all coaches are designed to work with all athletes. We need to realize that and kind of figure out how do we go about finding the right athletes for a particular coach or the other way around, the right coach for a particular athlete. This is the, you know, the, the social side of this. How do we get along with people? I learned a long time ago that I, I couldn't coach everybody. It wasn't going to be possible. I just, there was just some people I could not coach because we didn't see the world the same way. And I had to figure out a way to make sure that I found the right athletes for me, which was, which was good for the, for the athlete also. That meant we were going to have something which is going to be productive. The athletes I had coached before then who I was not the right coach for or they were not the right athlete for me, those athletes did not perform as well as they could have had they had a coach who was more in line with their way of seeing the world and perhaps their way of seeing coaching also. 
So that's part of the, of the coach's responsibility, I think, is to make sure you find the right, right relationships. You cannot be the coach for everybody and do everybody the same amount of value or provide the same amount of value for every athlete. You need to find people that are, are right for you as a coach. And that's, that's one of the considerations for an athlete also. When I talk with athletes, and they, they'll sometimes ask, how, about, how do I go about finding a coach? The first thing you do is you find somebody to get along with. That's the starting point. It's just like a, it's like any other relationship in your life. You've got to get along with this person. You wouldn't marry a person that you didn't get along with. That would be the, certainly the wrong thing to do. Well, th this is a marriage. The coach becomes extremely valuable to the athlete, becomes a big part of their life. They confide things, athletes confide things in their athlete, in their coaches that they probably don't tell hardly anybody else, perhaps not even their spouse. Uh, I can tell you so many stories about things that athletes have told me over the years that they would never have told somebody else other than a coach or a spouse or perhaps a parent even. So this, this is a critical responsibility we have, and it really comes down to the psychosocial side of, of coaching, which I think we're not doing a very good job with. You know, John, I'd love to take this full circle, right? Because I know in our conversations, you've identified a lot of the things that Joe is talking about here. And I know, I hope it's not a spoiler, but I know that you're working on sort of a new education program for USAC members. What's the future look like? How do you incorporate these things? Yeah, again, Joe's right. But there's a pretty big burgeoning field of study in academia that deals with coach education. And what's fascinating when you start to dive into it is you realize that there are a lot of things that are very sport agnostic in coaching. And, there, and it is exactly that social, psychological, and relationship aspect of it. And so there are a lot of industry standards that are being developed for coaching that don't, again, they're sport agnostic and they are actually incredibly effective at highlighting areas where I would say endurance sports have traditionally fallen short. I think some team sports have done a little bit better, but then there's other areas where team sports haven't done as well. So yeah, one of the things we are definitely in the process of building a new coach education and development program. And we'll be integrating a number of those standards and aspects. And I think that one of the pieces we're, we're moving towards is a piece, a linear kind of vertical pathway that does involve a core set of curriculum. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. To be honest, it wouldn't even really matter what sport it is, but it's, it's key pieces as you progress as a coach that you're able to utilize to better understand who you are, what your purpose is, who your athlete is, what their purpose is, what their goals are, how you can meet them, and then the relationship between the two because it's ever-changing. Just because you start out with a coach and, and things are working out wonderfully doesn't mean it's always going to stay that way, especially if one party or the other begins to kind of pull out and remove or change or, and I think often we tend to just close up in those situations and in actuality, uh, having harder conversations with athletes when things are changing, when competition's hard, when training's hard, when life is hard is really going to help our industry develop more in the future. And I think it's a piece that'll help our sports develop more and it'll create a much better long-term coach-athlete relationship. 
I think that recently we've been seeing a lot of emphasis on the mental health side of things, right? Is that something, John, you know, to take that as a topic specifically or adjacent topics, is that something that you see gets rolled into this coach education curriculum or kind of like Joe's concept prior? Is that something that the coach maybe isn't the person that's really involved, but they're identifying a specialist and they're handing an athlete off and they're sharing responsibilities? So you said two words that I will probably not say very often in my role, which is mental health or mental wellness. And I'm pretty convinced that there are certain language terms that have pieces of pretty significant bias built into them for a lot of our population. You're right, they're key and, and they're important, but in terms of addressing them with coach education, you have to be a lot more subtle. The exact same way a coach has to be subtle around certain subjects. And it was pretty fascinating to hear from Dan Young. He's a retiring, soon to be retired professor at I believe Eastern Michigan, who spent his whole career studying coach education. And one of the, I was at a conference and one of the audience members asked him, what's one thing you didn't study that you wish you would have? And this was exactly it, of language and use of language and terms with which to avoid, terms which to endorse. So it's something that'll be paid, we'll pay heavy attention to. But yes, athlete health and well-being is definitely a piece that's going to factor in there. It's it's already factoring into some pretty significant changes in our high-performance program, and it'll be a foundational piece for coaching education moving forward. And it seems like your switch, right? Because I, I think that what you're saying is switching from mental health, that terminology, maybe a little bit of the negative connotations that come with that, and more into this term well-being, I think that you just used, is, is a pretty fundamental shift in how you're going about this at, at an NGB level. Correct. And I think even with Joe's take on specialists, I know in the past when, you know, you're, you had an athlete that, that realized they could use additional help, you'd refer out to a sports psychologist. But how were you integrating what they were talking about with the sports psychologist into your everyday interactions? Not leaving it as a silo that... Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. I see, yes, you, you, I think to kind of bring a bunch of the pieces together, I see there being the need for specialization in coaching. I see coaches needing to have areas that they're passionate about, that they definitely have increased knowledge in. I will avoid using the term expertise and needing to use that as differentiating value in a very crowded marketplace. And at the same time, making sure that we avoid becoming siloed as coaches, where we have a specialty that that's what we're good at. We're not good at anything else. And being able to incorporate that whole athlete component. So it's far beyond just what I think coaching 2.0 did really well when they, when we integrated science really, really heavily, we got really good at building engines. One of our coaches coined this. Of the, the, our existing coaching education program was really good at building engines. It wasn't really good at building an entire car. And we've got to get better at building an entire car. And I think the key piece in there is a really solid frame. You can change out a lot of components, 
but you need that solid frame from the time an athlete is, you know, identifying as an athlete early on and as they develop that solid framework. And that's where, again, this social, psychological, and relationship aspect comes into play. And it's, again, something we haven't dealt with. And I think overall our NGB, and I think there'll be a number of other NGBs that really start to dedicate a lot of education towards. So it sounds like kind of the future that you're talking about, it's not so much topical. We got to talk about X, Y, and Z. It's almost recreating the entire education system, how, how you go about it, how you talk about it. It's from the bottom up and the top down. I think a better way to look at it is we're kind of taking the next step forward with coaching. And again, being sport agnostic, you can see the it's the writing is on the wall in a lot of different areas. And I think the pandemic was a great catalyst for a lot of sports, especially endurance sports, where we, a lot of us, and I don't know if this, if this was true with Joe, in the spring of 2020, feared the worst, that our clients were all going to leave because there were no events. And so there was no need for a real focused training plan. And in reality, the opposite happened. For most people I've talked to, people started coming out of the woodwork. No events, no necessary goals. They just needed guidance and they needed somebody to talk to about something other than what was going on in the world. And their previous sporting experiences were that kind of outlet. And I think there was definitely something there that as coaches, we need to realize, explore a lot more and capitalize on. This is Coach Ryan Kohler from Fast Talk Laboratories. And for a limited time, Inside Testing is 50% off. You've heard about all the benefits of Inside Testing. Inside Test results show your metabolic capacities, your load characteristics, your strengths and weaknesses, and more. This is an extremely valuable test about your physiology. Don't miss this limited time half-off deal. Schedule your Inside Test today at FastTalkLabs.com. So as we start to wrap up this episode, I can't help but take advantage of the, the, the two people we have in the room here. And I've got two questions I want to ask. But just to give some context, Joe, when you started out there, as you said, there was no guides, there was no information, no education at all for coaches. And you had to kind of figure it out on your own. But you became the person that provided those first guides for coaches and, and you really created the professional coaching business. But John, you've now been given no small task of USAC has handed to you the education of all the coaches in the system and have really been given this, this task of come up with a, a better model, better than anything that, that's been done so far for educating coaches. So the two questions I want to ask, I know you've already answered some of this, but Joe, what advice would you have for John? And then John, the question for you is, what is it that you hope to add that's new and hasn't been done before to the what's now a, a whole body of coach education knowledge that's out there? So, Joe, why don't we start with the question to you? I guess my starting point for this is when I started thinking I knew something about coaching and I decided to write a book about it. This is back in the mid early 90s and early wasn't much out there at all. I quite honestly considered myself an imposter. People were thought my book was good. And I thought I, I just made stuff up. 
And it didn't really come to me until later on that I was really writing stuff that I had come to believe in. But somehow it seemed like it was all like something I just pulled out of thin air because there wasn't anybody else that I could use as a, as a model for how to do this thing. So that's how I, and I've, I've, I've read so many other things about people who have been in a situation like mine where they, they were perhaps among the first to do whatever they were doing and they always thought of themselves as imposters. And somehow I think that's probably a healthy thing if you don't see yourself as being an imposter, if you see yourself as being a, a true expert, you know everything, it's we're back to the Dunning-Kruger curve again. And uh, I was at a stage where I was questioning my own ability to, to express what I was doing. So I think that is probably a good thing that, to, to see it that way. I would suggest that what John is talking about here going forward with USAC is exactly what he ought to be doing, which is looking, taking a look at the whole program in terms of what are we trying to accomplish for building coaching? It's not just about preparing athletes for, for a competition. It's about building a profession. That's what it's all about. If we can build a profession of, of good coaches, knowledgeable coaches, successful coaches, happy coaches, we're going to have a, something which is quite unique in the world of sport because not all coaches can achieve those things. So I think you're going down the right path. I'm glad to see you're talking about doing things which are outside of the realm, but beyond the realm of simply looking at the exercise physiology side of it, perhaps, or nutrition side of it, which we've done for now for a few decades. It's time to start looking at things well beyond those those parameters. And I, I think you're, you're talking about doing the same things I would like to see happen. So I'm, I'm very pleased with the direction that you're going. John, my question to you and any response to what Joe just said? Well, number one, I, I definitely appreciate the advice. It's always good to hear advice from someone who you read his book when, you know, you're first starting out. So it's it's always incredibly good to hear that we might be on the right path. I think a, a better way that I have to look at this because I am coming as a representative of USA Cycling and a national governing body is the industry developed far beyond what USA Cycling was supporting in the, I would say, 2010 timeframe on. It was growing far greater than just USA Cycling. Our coaching education and development area was pretty, became pretty light starting in 2018. And that role has been empty for two years since the pandemic. And as a result, I think, and I'm pretty confident in this, we've lost a lot of trust with the coaching industry. And it's a challenging position to be in. And so, you know, as we move forward, we're not going to be able to follow the typical pathway that was used by national governing bodies in the past, which is the stick method of involvement of you need, we'll use rules and policies to make sure that our coaches are involved with our coaching education program. Instead, we definitely have to use the carrot and we've got to make it look good. We've got to make sure that they're involved and that they see a benefit from it. And we've got to do so. So it still falls within USA Cycling's mission. And it's, it's kind of a challenging position to be in, but it also is not necessarily a challenging position to be in because USAC's uh, mission currently involves two primary components, and that's sustained international su success and uh, growing the sport of bike racing. And I know most coaches would not shy away from growing the sport 
because it means more business for them. So as a result, you know, I think we've got some, some common goals there. And so as I move forward with developing this, I don't see myself as somebody with answers. I see myself in much more as a facilitator and ideally involving the coaching industry as a whole in how this program develops, specifically the curriculum. I don't know what I don't know. And I, there is no way I can sit in an office and try to keep up to speed on everything going on in the coaching world, but I can try and bring along people that are very engaged and knowledgeable and help them help us create a program that really is going to benefit the industry as a whole. John, Joe, this was the conversation that I was hoping to have with both of you. I think he had some really incredible insights. You know, for the listeners who are out there and, and found this fascinating, definitely check out the Craft of Coaching body of work that we're putting together with Joe. It's a multimedia experience about all different aspects of coaching, not not limited to just writing training plans, but about how to build a team, how to mentor athletes, how to communicate all of these things. So it's a really good in-depth sort of guide that isn't really being talked about in other outlets. But beyond that, that was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our coaching and education community. For Joe Friel, who's helped us get to where we are today, John Tarkington, who's going to take us into the future, and Trevor Connor, who has no part in this, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> <laughs>